Hello and welcome once again to Yesterladies. I am Dana. And I'm Heather. And Heather, what is our topic today? Why, Dana? Today we are talking about the Sultanate of Women. Whoa, the Sultanate of Women. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Well, Dana, you didn't know. Um, So this is a time period uh, during the 16th and 17th centuries in the Ottoman Empire. And so it's about 130 years where women in the royal family or the harem uh, controlled a large amount of power and uh, influenced the sultans and uh, and the kingdom as a whole. So uh, it's known as the Sultanate, Sultanate of Women because uh, they either... Um, by proxy um, or uh, through influence, basically ruled the kingdom or had a, a strong role in ruling the kingdom. Thank you, Heather. Now I know what the Sultanate of Women was. <laughs> now you are informed. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is very true. <laughs> I like this talk. You you found this topic. Yeah, yeah. Where did you first read about it? Uh, I stumbled across a woman that we'll talk about later um, named Roxalana. Mm. At least that's the name she's known by. It's not necessarily her full name, but uh, I stumbled across across her and then started one of those like research benders where you start at one spot and you end up down this crazy rabbit hole, like reading about something completely different two hours later. So, um, this got me into the Sultanate of women. And then I was looking up like harems and then I was looking up eunuchs and it was just like crazy. And it's <laughs> just a natural progression. I really. Up, I ended up looking up castrati and then like listening to audio recordings of the last known castrato singer in like the Vatican, uh, choir. Like it was just crazy. I ended up in these just crazy research spots, but, uh, yeah, all of this started from the Sultanate of Women. Sultanate of Women. Yeah. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, this period of about 130 years in the uh, 15 and 1600s in Turkey, Mm -hmm. primarily is what we're talking about. Um, So this is, as I think you mentioned, this is the Ottoman Empire. Correct. Um, So, I mean, when you talk about the harem, I think <laughs> it conjures up in our Western mind, it, it conjures up this kind of erotic, um, free for all <laughs> kind of a place <laughs> where the Sultan or the King was just completely debauched and consorting with, you know, hundreds of women. And so the harem was more like a kind of miniature government within the um, royal palace made up of all of the women of the palace. Um, it was kind of this hierarchical structure and it, as somebody within our readings talked about how it kind of mirrored the army in mm. terms of its like structure and hierarchy and discipline and all of this. So it wasn't some kind of like lush male fantasy <laughs> land necessarily. Although of course, um, you know, the Sultan had access to these women is what <laughs> yes. I'm assuming. Yes. I mean, I feel like none of our readings directly <laughs> talks about that, but yeah, they kind of skirt the, the basic idea the I'm, sexual I'm assuming reasons. is that he could sleep with any one of them at pretty any much. time. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. I mean, that that's a pretty big caveat <laughs> that he got to make <laughs> yes. all the decisions in terms of, uh, in terms of the sex and they were, um, there at his leisure yeah yes. yeah um but the the actual structure of the harem itself is actually quite interesting and it was like this right. little miniature women's kingdom and at the very top of this hierarchy was the um valid sultan that's how i've been pronouncing it in my head do you think that sounds right i don't know i've been, I've been pronouncing it valide valide oh but, i don't know uh, we don't know which is correct yeah sorry <laughs> if any of our listeners know please let us know yes absolutely uh, I'm just going to keep calling her the Valide. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the Valid Sultan would always be the mother of the ruling Sultan. And apparently this was kind of a, a thing in that society that they venerated mothers in particular and foreign dignitaries, uh, Westerners or whoever else kind of knew that if you wanted to conduct any business with the Sultan and, you know, have form alliances or whatever, that the best thing to do was to go to the mother of the Sultan first and talk to her, which is pretty interesting. Like it wasn't the, like the, the top wife or anything like that. It was the mother of the Sultan was kind of the most powerful woman in the country really. And certainly the most powerful woman in the harem. And as we'll talk about later, um, I think it, Usually the women we end up talking about, they tend to be this this position, right? The Valid Sultan, or there's a few of them that yes. kind of rose yeah. to prominence. Yes. And if you look into Ottoman history, especially in this time period, almost all of the women in power are in power because they are the Valid. Right. You know, the ear of the king. Right. I thought that was really interesting when we were doing this research because coming out of um, more experience with Western history, we're used to thinking of the king and the queen and the queen being the one Mm -hmm. with the power and she would be the one that power plays would go through on the the female side or if you wanted to gain access to the king or gain the king's ear, you might go through the queen. Um, And so it's a complete switch um, to to all of a sudden be thinking of the king's mother as the most powerful. But uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. It is. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, So the harem was made up of all of the women in the court and kind of um, it would be expanded by taking in these slave girls. Um, They might be bought from slave markets or taken from uh, conquered peoples or people that, that the empire fought. So they could come from all over. So the term harem comes from the Islamic root um, I don't know how you would pronounce this, but just HRM, so harem, <laughs> I guess, which apparently that denoted a sacred area with no gender specifications. Um, so the harem was actually made up of both men and women, but all of the men in the harem were eunuchs. Yes. <laughs> do you have anything more on that? Because I thought that was a really um, interesting. I do. I I found or find eunuchs interesting and sort of did a little... I, I kind of had a feeling that that was an area <laughs> It's a that weird would, thing to find yeah. interesting, I guess. But if our listeners are not familiar with what a eunuch is, so it's basically um, a man who has been castrated for the purpose of um, looking after the women in a harem or basically not being a sexual threat um, to the women in in whatever situation. So basically um, if you're a king or a powerful man and you have all these women sort of available for your sexual needs, you don't want the men guarding them or the men serving them to, um, sort of, you know, it, it'd be enjoying them as well. So, uh, so yeah. you would castrate all these men or you would find castrated, pre-castrated men. Um, and these would be the men in contact with the women in the harem. So it's mm-hmm. basically like a way to ensure everyone the exclusive access of whatever man is um, in, in control of the situation. Um, and they're actually formed like a market of eunuchs. And mm-hmm. so boys would be kidnapped from all different places and then castrated. And apparently there were maybe... Um, communities of monks like i was reading in, in north africa there were these communities of monks that were known for castrating boys and selling them as wow. um eunuchs to like other kingdoms and yeah it was like it was not really, very nice monks. oh it was really dark <laughs> yeah i know i was like what monks were these <laughs> stay away but, <laughs> but uh it was like big money it was it was an industry the same way that um young women would be for the harem so mm-hmm. you would be kidnapped or find yourself in this situation and um be placed in in uh, 
a harem or in a, a palace or a kingdom. And uh, and what I found especially interesting was they were both black and white eunuchs, mm-hmm. um, but the black eunuchs, eunuchs were considered um, superior and they always held the higher rank position. And there was a head white eunuch and a head black eunuch and the head black eunuch was the head of all the eunuchs <laughs> so he was the the guy in charge in the harem serving the women that's so interesting <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really interesting well the other interesting thing that i was reading about the eunuchs was that they also i mean it sounds like they served kind of as servants yes. to the women in the harem Absolutely. but also uh educators and kind of yeah, contacts like, I get like like, like tutors. Yes, because I yes. gather that when a and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I gather that when a girl, a young woman, is brought into the harem, a slave girl, mm-hmm. and she starts at the bottom, and she's tutored and taught by the eunuchs, which is interesting. So you've got this little community of yes. all of these women, and then all of these um, castrated men, <laughs> yes. and it's this weird, very prescribed. Um, roles situation but right. there i don't know it's it's very interesting yes. it's i thought the same thing when i read that part about the girls being trained and educated um and i thought it's like a really awful boarding school <laughs> like yeah. awful sexual boarding school <laughs> it's just such a weird environment you don't come across that kind of environment often in history or or in the modern world so, yeah. yeah i i was um doing this research some of the parts that surprised me the most were related to what the harems were actually like because Mm -hmm. like you say we have a very stereotypical Mm -hmm. western sexualized notion of what the harem was there for and while it was very sexual it was a lot of other things as well Mm -hmm. and uh that's where i I think i I think what people don't like it wasn't like it was sexual or i don't i don't believe from Mm -hmm. what we've read it 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 wasn't like people were i don't know I think kind of the the picture that a lot of Westerners have is is some draped palace where all of these women are scantily clad and like dancing around yes. and not doing a whole lot except serving the Sultan grapes. Yeah, just like lounging him alluringly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was this community mm-hmm. where they would yeah. do like any court kind of like right. any other royal court yes. at the time where they were engaging in all sorts of activities yeah. including and, and raising their children and raising their and children and scheming and, politically and yeah and even just managing and day-to-day and tasks in the palace yeah. and yeah. you know business in the royal city and, and business yeah. in the in the kingdom so that sort of thing yeah. yeah so i think your typical day in the harem was not like lounging in silk <laughs> pants gyrating for the sultan <laughs> while your your sister feeds him grapes like. as much as you might want it to be yeah. well <laughs> no <laughs> I should like the the picture they paint in our readings where it's more I, like I agree. they're reading and they're doing like, you know, crafts and things and raising crafts. the children. <laughs> I agree. I do prefer that option. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. um, so the, the Imperial Palace harem was comprised of the mother of the Sultan, his spouses and favorites, as well as his like sisters, aunts, grandmothers, nieces, and lots of other relatives. And of course, um, the children, who there could very well be many of, um, the staff, and then below that, even more kind of slave girls. So as we said, at the very top was the Valid Sultan, and she was she had the ultimate power within the harem, and it, it sounds to me like she was the one who managed the harem as well, and who, you know, the hierarchy led up to her, and she made the decisions and managed the finances and all that stuff. So she was the most important. Um and then after her, the most important women were the Kadines, 
And I hope I'm saying that right as well. So again, apologies for mispronunciations. Please do write in and correct us if we've gotten them wrong. But so the Cadines were the women in the harem who had borne the Sultan's sons and he could have uh, four at a time and they may or may not have been married to the Sultan, but whether they were or not actually officially married, they were treated like official wives and they had their own quarters and ladies in waiting and slaves and jewels and dresses and allowance. So after the Kadines, so again, so the, the mom is at the top and then the four women uh, at a time who gave him sons. I don't, I'm assuming there would have been other women who may have borne the Sultan's sons, but right. I guess his favorites, yeah, his like four only, favorites out of those would of be, yeah. Right. Um, so after the Kadines were the Iqbal's. Ik- I don't know what I'm saying. Gosh, I'm going to do that every time. I'm sorry. I-Q-B-A-L-S. Um, Iqbal's? Anyway, they were the favorites of the Sultan, kind of the next favorites. And if they gave birth to a child, they would be called Haseki. And if that child happened to be a son, they would be raised up to Kadeen. So, I mean, it is problematic, right? Like the <laughs> within the structure of the society. It's extremely patriarchal. Yeah. Men <laughs> right, take, yes. you know, precedence, even within the harem. <laughs> yes. Oh. Your ability to bear sons is kind of the most important thing. Yes. I have a quote from one of the authors mm. that we read about that. Um, and uh, his name is Philip Emirates. And he had a really interesting article called Feminine Power in the Ottoman Harem. Mm. And uh, his quote is, It cannot be questioned that women were unequal with men in society, but women commanded a surprising amount of influence and presence despite their limitations. Uh, And another scholar that he mentions, Dennis Candioti, uh, coined the term, quote, patriarchal bargains Mm. for the capabilities of women in a male-dominated society. And he talks about how bearing a son would have been one of those patriarchal bargains. So basically, like, you do something Mm -hmm. to benefit you or yourself or the people around you that fits in with the goals of this patriarchal society and it it might get you power and influence but it's still within this larger power structure where Mm -hmm. men are solidly in control so yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it's all very interesting it's all very complex to me (laughs) um so after the um iqbal's there was the odalisks or the concubines um, and they were at the bottom of the hierarchy and all the female slaves entered in the palace. They were first odalisks or women of the court. Um, and there were a huge number of them. They were, you know, they made up a, a, probably the, I'm sure the largest proportion of the harem. Um, and you could, if you were brought in at the bottom of the hierarchy, you could work your way up, which I found very interesting that this was a system where I mean, I guess trading on both your skill and knowledge <laughs> and um, charm, I yes. guess, you could work your way up. And then, of course, <laughs> you really made your way up was to bear children and specifically <laughs> sons. Which is rather controlled by fate. <laughs> it is, yeah. yes. But at least there was a way. It, it wasn't as kind of prescribed and like you can't break out of your social caste yes. as some other societies yeah. where nothing you do can elevate Correct. You, yeah, it was a know. little more democratic. Yeah, than... even if a lot of those factors may or may not be <laughs> within your control, right, right. at least there were ways to kind of move up. And at least yes. some of that was yes. through your own effort and yeah. and skill. And you could move from like um, captured slave brought in in a slave market to the lead, um, you know, mother highest 
power position for women in the entire kingdom. Yeah. And that was completely legitimate. And you mm-hmm. did not face any scrutiny or discrimination discrimination because, of that, because yeah. of that. Yeah. So it was seen as a legitimate path to power, which mm-hmm. I did also find interesting. Yeah, yeah. That was to me one of the most interesting mm-hmm. aspects of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um so the captured slave girls would have been trained and educated uh, by the very skilled eunuchs, as we mentioned, which is interesting. So they would have been taught to sing, play instruments, dance, and other royal disciplines, as well as to read the Quran. Um, they would be educated in the etiquette of the court um, and even to read and write and learn foreign languages and instructed in various crafts. See, I wasn't, I wasn't getting the crafts. <laughs> Basket weaving. Yeah. <laughs> Plastic can. <laughs> Very nice. Maybe quilting. <laughs> no, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So the um, the concubines at the bottom of the power structure they weren't sent to the sultan. So I guess um, it wasn't until you got higher up the structure that you were really available sexually to the sultan, which is interesting. Um, you were considered, I think, more of a servant. Um, but everybody was brought up in the discipline of the palace and, uh, you could be kind of promoted to become like a senior maid. Um, and you know, our readings point out that a lot of the women in the Sultanate were, um, slaves and even Christians from outside of the society because they would be like captured, Mm -hmm. captured slaves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, um, sort of international and diverse group of people um from mm-hmm. what i i sense from the readings um, well and roxalana who you'll talk yes. about later i think she was um yeah, she was eastern european right uh, yeah basically where she was from is ukraine today so she would yeah. have been a christian um like polish ukrainian Orthodox, girl yeah. um yeah and then you know all of a sudden in istanbul um in this very sort of um like middle eastern um, mm-hmm. muslim community mm-hmm. and uh yeah and i get the sense she wasn't the only one because a lot mm-hmm. of the other powerful women talked about where they had been kidnapped from or <laughs> where or where they hailed from so yeah uh, girls and young women were coming from all over mm-hmm. um sort of which is both being brought in disturbing and yeah. interesting right it's <laughs> yeah, kind of right. disturbing it's it's the yeah, it's disturbing it's, on the level that these are girls being market. kidnapped and <laughs> yes. like yeah. taken away from their their homes and their right. families, which right. is absolutely horrible. Yes, but also interesting in the the broader makeup of the harem, I think, in that it was yeah. this like multicultural right the dynamics and place. and the genetics too of the yeah of the actually that's a very good point. You look mm-hmm. at all of these um you know Western uh courts and um dynasties where they're like the Habsburgs yeah, and stuff. yeah. they're super inbred right. <laughs> like the ancient Egyptians issue. like again yes. like super inbred and then here we have this much kind of in this sense wiser mm. <laughs> structure where they're bringing you know they're diversifying the gene pool and I'm sure that in the long run made for less insane rulers hopefully in <laughs> hopefully. general <laughs> yes although side note we don't talk about it here but uh, i came across in some of my research the story of the golden cage and uh, it was basically an area in the harem where the sons of the king so the the heirs apparent were raised mm. and they had every desire satisfied like there was nothing that they could want for or wish for mm. or ask for that wasn't brought to them immediately but they could never leave um that area and uh, a couple of sons um basically went 
insane because they lived too many years. Like their father was in power too long and oh they were basically like men in their thirties and had never left these quarters. And, uh, and then when they took power, they were unable to rule and they were just complete disasters. Yeah. And, wow. and I, I think they had to be killed. I don't remember the exact history, but it was like other, like their mothers and uncles were basically having them killed or other people, other influential people in the court. And everyone was kind of happy about that situation like it was a good thing because they were they were just absolutely unfit um well that kind of of their time explains because i know we'll we'll talk about this or i'm not sure if you do have but there was Mm. one of the one of these women who kind of went on to become one of these powerful women during the sultan of women period who she uh ruled by proxy for like three generations three generations like her her son and, and then her grandson and then her great grandson yes, right yeah so maybe these and were it was, all it was some members of her family that were involved in that issue huh. with the golden cage and, and so you could argue that um this system with the the harem like they were <laughs> those women these these people that they were educating and and had i guess more freedom than these guys in the golden cage yeah in kind of a really paradoxical fitting way fitting them better to rule right. than yeah these yeah. secluded pampered princes princes yes, yeah right and that didn't happen to all princes i think mm-hmm. that was a fairly specific time period um and often princes would take over or their fathers would call them up basically and sort of take them under their wing and train them before that point it was just like a sort of an sometimes odd situation happen, yeah. yeah sometimes it would happen that they would end up living in the golden cage too long and basically being driven to madness and oh seemed like a really horrible fate too so <laughs> if you weren't getting madness through genetics <laughs> you might be caging your sons too long in this uh, area of the harem <laughs> so you never know uh, another thought that struck me too was um um comparing this to i think both of us have a, a much stronger background in british history the mm-hmm. history of the british uh, monarchy and i kept thinking of king henry the eighth and all mm-hmm. of his wives and i thought you know it, this is basically just a way to legitimize what's going on in all royal societies right and yeah there are very few like, faithful <laughs> kings in, right. in any country's history and so many rulers are taking um lovers and sometimes even official um mistresses right yeah, um, yeah. and and there would be maybe dozens of these women through their careers depending on the ruler um and i thought you know this is a kingdom where that's just recognized and mm-hmm. expected and while that's not a great thing um it's maybe more honest it's right it's yeah it's, <laughs> it's a little more open um and yeah and so it can probably help solve some problems that the other systems create right yes intent, exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> yes yes and i kept thinking of like you know anne boleyn and mm-hmm. jane gray and <laughs> jane seymour and all these poor women and they had to just keep being killed and divorced <laughs> and you know if he had been able to have say four of these um what was the name of the position of the the sun bearing wives yeah, sort of yeah. thing, at least there would be a position for them you know and we could have a few lovers legitimately without like killing off all his previous wives so um you know again it's not something we necessarily agree with but it's interesting to compare with royal the families other that, societies at the time right right yeah that expected monogamy and that was enshrined in your religion and, and everyone's expectations and that yeah. sort of thing so you know I, I just feel like king henry the eighth would have done better or his wives would have done better under this <laughs> under this harem system, system. Yeah. right that's true <laughs> yeah well and another thing to kind of point out about um the harem system especially like when you're comparing it as we're doing to other contemporary kingdoms um you know where as western outsiders both at the time and kind of still in our skewed um vision of of 
the Islamic history and the harem and the whole thing you get this idea of these oppressed women who mm. are you know veiled and they're in this harem where there's hundreds of them just to service the pleasure of the king um arguably they had more agency and could have more power than a lot of other women at the time they it sounds like women were respected more and valued more, especially mothers in this society than in other contemporary societies. And they were, these women were educated and treated with respect. And um, I loved one of the, one of the customs was um, the, as we said, the Valid Sultan, the mother of the king was, um, consulted about things and um, from time to time they would be asked to intervene upon um, a sultan's decision so sometimes the muftis the the head of the of the religion would report to her if and when they felt a bad decision had been made <laughs> by the sultan that might be harmful for the empire so mm. she was kind of i don't know it was almost like she was a higher authority mm. even than the sultan because mm. she was the one who could step in and intervene right which is very interesting and it just mm. it kind of it it denotes a whole society where women were a lot more valued their opinions were more valued than other societies at the time and since then and before then right which is so interesting given our kind of stereotypical image of that culture right absolutely and i remember reading that uh the women particularly the women in the harem but i imagine a lot of the women in the city were living at a much higher standard um mm -hmm. just daily life than many other women i mean if you think right, of europe that... in the dark ages to be like a peasant woman or even a court woman right <laughs> yeah you've got like rats you know and the rushes on the floor still and... not great <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not ideal <laughs> by our standards yeah <laughs> right. not great and, you know, um... everyone has body lace and hasn't washed it in like, years <laughs> and, and uh, yeah it, it all sounds a lot more well and that was kind pleasant. of another thing that one of the writers mentioned that uh if you were a slave in the harem after, if you served faithfully and worked hard after seven years, uh, you could kind of apply or ask to be released, set free. And, and you would be, basically, it sounds like. Yeah, unless there was some reason, reason not, not to. to they, you, would, yeah. they would grant you your freedom and they yeah. would even grant you, I think, some money and mm. a title and some, you know, whatever to compensate you. Um, and while I'm sure some women took that offer up... A lot didn't because it was actually a more stable and probably pleasant environment to live in the harem right. than to take your chances in the in the wider world because this was still kind of a rough and tumble time period <laughs> yes. around the world, no matter where you were. So yes. yeah, your chances of a kind of stable, happy, nonviolent, <laughs> protected, especially as a woman, because yes. this is very, True. I mean, I guess you're not protected from the advances of the sultan. He can mm. do what he, he wants, but in terms of other male threats sure, <laughs> or, sure. or, you know, whatever violence in general, um, you were protected right. within the harem and you had these eunuchs to serve you and teach you. And, <laughs> yes. and you would have built up a lot of relationships with the other women yeah. in the harem, right? You would probably have close friends. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. I mean, um, it was, it was a family really. Right. Yeah. And if you, you had children or they had children, yeah, it would be this very large community of so that women and their would kids be hard and, to leave. I yeah, imagine. absolutely. Yeah. Especially when, you know, you also have the prospect of potentially rising up mm -hmm. and yes. becoming one of the top 
ladies. Yes, if you were ambitious and yeah, like yeah. climbing the career ladder in the harem, <laughs> you may not want to leave because things might really be going your way. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another point I wanted to make too was um, that it was refreshing for me to see an older woman getting the highest level of respect yeah. available. Not and based I, on like youth or beauty. Right. Exactly. And yeah. it almost seemed like she had to get past that point, like mm-hmm. past the point of being a sexual object for the king. And that's kind of why perhaps the wife didn't have the highest power position, but like she had to get out of the childbearing years and the years of being a sexual object for the king perhaps and rise up sort of above that or past hmm. that. That's and a then, really interesting point. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of mulling over this, like, you know, then she wouldn't have, um, conflicting maybe interests or, um, distractions. But part of it also was that women were advocating women in the harem were advocating for their sons, that all mm-hmm. of their interest and pressure, um, and ambition was for their sons to become Sultan mm-hmm. to the point of like scheming and maybe trying to murder other women's sons Ooh. or, or, you know, advocating for their sons and pushing their sons in front of the Sultan and this sort of thing. And all, there were all kinds of just like devious power plays and, you know, crazy political moves, um, to try to, for women to try to get their sons in power because then they would become the Valide. But, but, uh, um, you know, it was, it was about this older woman who had moved on from that sort of station of life mm-hmm. um, into sort of this like wiser, um, higher position. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought that was a really nice reversal because mm-hmm. often we just see older women as like brushed aside, like you're past your sexual prime. And so your usefulness to us is gone. And now they were prized as being the wisest person to consult or the person you go to when maybe the king has been to intercede. Yes, exactly. And I, and uh, yeah, a a big influence. So yeah, that's a really neat point. Actually. I like that a lot. It was refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, your power is still coming through bearing male heirs <laughs> and knocking down all of their opponents, but, yeah. but at least, you know, at least you're, you, in the end, you're getting some payback for that position. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, and so. again, comparatively speaking, mm. I think, you know, given the time period, if I had to choose between, um, <laughs> I don't know, a maid in King Henry's court. And I'm sure they weren't uh, safe from <laughs> his approaches, <laughs> his approaches right? yes, or absolutely. other men's approaches in the, in the uh, court. Mm. Um, and perhaps a concubine in Istanbul. I don't know. I might, I might go for the concubine. The more research I'm doing. I, yeah. I might agree with you. It would be warmer too. Yes. He wouldn't be in his freezing stone castles. He'd be given an education. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I know it's, yeah, it's interesting. Something to think about. about. Something to ponder, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> These are the things that keep us up at night. Whether or not we would prefer a floating brothel. Well, I was just going to say floating brothel. And whether we'd rather be a maid in King uh, Henry VIII's court or a concubine <laughs> in, in the Sultanate of Women period. <laughs> right in, in let us know. Yeah, what, yes. Oh, I think we should do another, another poll. Yes, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> One other fact I wanted to add about this is that during the Sultanate of Women, this time period, um, the, the method of assuming power or the method of choosing a sultan changed. Mm. Um, and the we sort of go into this era with uh, this is really sort of wild west um with upon the death of a sultan his throne is considered open so all all and any contenders to the throne or interested parties basically have to fight to the death to claim the throne yeah so so, he wouldn't like before his death he he would declare an heir he would not declare an heir it was just open season and so all of these mothers in the harem have i'm sure been priming their sons and priming and making political moves and alliances and allegiances and just scheming um 
day and night to uh, get their sons on the throne. And uh, and it even came down to like brother against brother, right? Because you have multiple sons. Well, which one takes power? And oh, it was all this like big drama. And uh, and so basically, whoever conquered, whoever won out against everyone else by force or by guile um, would take the throne. And we see a shift in the politics of that um, during this time period. And, and they go to um, the Sultan dictating an heir before he passes, which was hugely stabilizing. Yes. I can imagine <laughs> for, for the monarchy and for the kingdom. So I was just like, Oh, well, okay. I'm glad they got that figured out. <laughs> it makes sense. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. A- that's the, that's the one thing, right? At least that the European system had going for it in that, you know, <laughs> yes. no, it's just the, the firstborn mm-hmm. boy. Primogenitor. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's the way it, and legitimate, you know, yes. <laughs> can't be a bastard. <laughs> right. His mom had to be married to the gang and you know firstborn boy yes. he gets the throne as opposed to this like well you know i've got a lot of sons <laughs> they can all find it out yeah <laughs> right it doesn't really make for great like brother and brother relationships no. growing up <laughs> no it would be i have to say in stressful. some ways i, I wouldn't want to be a, a prince <laughs> it seems really risky yeah. yeah you're taking your life in your hands i'd rather be a concubine <laughs> again <laughs> <laughs> right uh the the only issue with um appointing an, an heir was that um that appointment could be changed or taken away um and i'll mention this later when we get into um, some specific ladies um, in this history but um you know you could be the king's current or the sultan's current favorite mm-hmm. and uh, and your you know, preferred son. It didn't have to be your, your oldest son, but probably your oldest son uh, would be the heir apparent, and this would be great. And then, oh, oh, all of a sudden, some new lady shows up or rises within the ranks of the harem, and she can bears win his heart, son. bears a son, and then all of a sudden, the throne is shifted to that son. So mm. it it was it not, wasn't set in stone. Yes, it was not set in stone. Yeah, and it was not mm. considered to be like divinely appointed or anything mm-hmm. like that. So yeah. uh, it still could be. Um, unstable at times. But, Again, yeah. it's it's interesting though that like okay, so the the Sultan appoints mm. uh, one of his sons. So arguably, I would assume if you had a good Sultan who was savvy and wise mm. and and was a good ruler. Um, I mean, if I were in that position, <laughs> uh, you would I would assume you would kind of look amongst your sons and decide who would be the best right. Sultan. So yes. again, instead of being yeah. in a position where you're like, oh, my son, he's an, he's an asshole, <laughs> but I might have to bleep that. He's just completely incompetent. Yeah, but right. he's, you know, primogenitor, First, he's, right. he gets it. Yeah. Um, you've got this situation where you've got all of these candidates right. to choose from. Yeah. Yeah. You can choose based on talent. On merit. And yeah. On, yes. On what am I trying to say? Applicability for yeah. the job. <laughs> right. It's kind of like interviews. A, like an interview yeah. selection. Yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. Yeah, I know. I That ran through my mind as well that if you were a wise king, you could do that, or a wise leader. So, Heather, let's hear about some of these specific women right. who held a great deal of power let's, during the Sultanate of Women, because they it. are an interesting bunch, they for are sure. An interesting crew, right? And uh, the the one woman who uh, started this for all of us, uh, Roxolana. Mm-hmm. So, I did some research on her, and then we're going to talk about her daughter too. So, there was sort of a, a little, a little mini, mini dynasty, yes, a little lineage, a lady lineage. <laughs> so, um, which may, which is very appropriate for the Sultanate of Women, absolutely. But uh, all right, so Roxolana is uh, basically a nickname for this woman and uh, her birth name was Alexandra Anastasia Lisowska um, and so she was born in um, the kingdom of Poland which now is considered western Ukraine um, and this was in the year 1500 so she lived 1500 to 1558 and um, 
so she was known as Roxolana. Um, and then what happened, unfortunately, as we were saying before, she was um, taken captive by raiding Tartars. Yeah, that's so crappy. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kidnapped, <laughs> dragged away from the life she's always known, uh, sold as a slave, and brought to Istanbul, where she was selected to join Sultan uh, Suleiman's harem. And I'm not sure if I'm saying Suleiman or Suleiman. I, think I was Suleiman, assuming but... it was Suleiman. Yes, I think that's how I've heard it pronounced before. Uh, so she joins his harem. Um, and apparently she was very beautiful. And so her beauty caught whoever does the harem selections, caught their <laughs> eye. Um, and uh, so she gets brought in um, as a, a servant in the system and would have gone through the same process, right? The training and the educating and, and moving up within the ranks of the harem. So they weren't treated like slaves the way we think of it in terms of like serving and whatever. Um Every woman in the harem, even down to the lowest concubines, they were all entitled to like allowances, monetary allowances and material possessions according to their rank. But basically they were all given like a, a fund, I guess, yeah, like to, a stipend, a stipend to, to yep. spend how they want, um, which again is very interesting <laughs> and not at all what you kind of assume or picture. Right. Yes. Yeah. I remember reading that as well. And they compared the income... Um, of the Valide with um, the income of some of the men in the court. And mm. she was doing far better. Yeah, sure. She was doing far better. Yeah. It was like hundreds more of the currency. I forget the name of the currency, but uh, yeah, she was, she was basically like raking in a large income and I found that fascinating. And yeah. And they talked about how the, the lowest servant girls in the harem were bringing in one or two per day and she's getting thousands per day. So it's really great. <laughs> um, all right. So back to Roxolana. So she, um, when she joined the harem, uh, she was basically renamed and her name was Harem uh, and later Harem Sultan uh, when she when she rose to power. So Harem's beauty caught the eye of Suleiman um, and she became one of his new favorites. So we talked about how uh, the Sultan at any point could just decide he had a new favorite or some new woman could catch his eye. Um, and so Harem basically walked into big drama when she became the new favorite of the Sultan, um, because he had a current favorite and her name was, uh, Mahidravan Sultan. And she had a son, Mustafa, who was the heir apparent. But when Harem shows up, she uh -oh. upsets this entire balance and throws uh, everything out of whack. <laughs> just uh, ruins Mahidravan's <laughs> plans for herself and her son because she's assuming if her son is Sultan, she will then be Valide and she'll be the most powerful woman in in the kingdom. So uh, Harem really ruins this all for her. Um, in retaliation, so Mahidravan um, really loathed Harem and did everything she could to try to get her out of power and get her out of the Sultan's eye and this sort of thing. Um, but it really worked against her. And mm. at one point, Mahidravan beat Harem. Um, and the Sultan banished her and her son to a provincial town. So Whoa. she basically acted so badly that she got herself and her son kicked out um, of the succession and of the palace. So she went too far. Don't overstep those boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> don't go against the favorite. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. So Mahidravan has been removed. Harem's uh, path ahead of her is clear. Um, so she was instructed in Islam, which would have been part of her general education. And uh, she eventually decided to convert, which I thought was really interesting that they were teaching them mm -hmm. about the but religion. But not forcing them to convert. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it wasn't absolutely expected um, because her conversion or her decision to convert really pleased Suleiman. He was really happy that she had made that decision. Hmm. Um, but, and I love this, this is my, one of my favorite facts about her. When she decided to convert, she then refused to sleep with him because it was against the teachings of the religion and they weren't married. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was like, oh, snap. That's awesome. <laughs> I just 
love it. And uh, it actually reminded me a bit of Anne Boleyn, who, yeah, who yeah, was yeah. expecting Henry VIII's child and said, like, you know, we have to be married. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, using the religious rules against the, the ruler. So, uh, anyway, this is great. So, Harem does something similar. And her ploy works. And uh, so he decided to marry her. But as we said, uh, a sultan can have multiple wives. Um, so what he did is he went one step further and he freed Harem so that she could be his legal wife. And this caused huge waves in the harem and in the kingdom at the time because it was not often that a wife was a legal wife um, and, and freed as well. Right, so, yeah, that's so a she, big deal. Yes, yeah, she got her freedom and she got this position as his wife and that really made their future children um, legitimate. They, they um, were basically right in line for the throne after that. Um, all right, so she had five, they had five children together and one of whom would become future Salim the second so ah. one of her sons became sultan um and she was not just bearing children at this time she was very politically active um on her husband's behalf so she was writing letters to the king of poland which was her former country um and she of course would have spoken the language and all that and um so she was basically his um envoy to the king or or um Ambassador. Ambassador. Thank you. <laughs> um, and two of those letters still survive. So you can go and see them today oh. if you, yeah, you want to see the letters from Roxolana. Um, and she influenced Suleiman, her husband, to stop raids in her homeland. Um, and oh, thought, that's great. Yeah, I thought that was a great legacy. You know, even though she's kidnapped and brought, she gets him to successfully stop doing the same thing to other girls and you know as successful as she was i'm sure she wouldn't wish that on mm -hmm. other girls to be kidnapped away from their homes so mm -hmm. i thought that was a really nice sort of giving back yeah <laughs> on her part. Nice. yeah um and she was doing all sorts of things and many of the women in this position um at this time were as well doing this um they were establishing soup kitchens and mosques and colleges and hospitals and mm -hmm. um some of the research that we were reading talked about how the vast majority of commissions and architecture, um, architectural commissions um, and buildings being established were by women at this time. And previous to this era, the sultans were doing all of the commissioning. And during this time frame, this 130 years, it switched almost exclusively to women yeah. commissioning. Buildings. I mean, they were really, it seems like during this period, the women of the harem were, were the ones who were kind of responsible for the infrastructure of yes. the kingdom, um, which is just so interesting and Neat. cool yes. yeah and so opposite of what we expect expect mm -hmm. too yeah. so yeah I, I thought that was great um and so she was building mosques and and all sorts of things everywhere um but she had some some darker influence as uh -oh. well so uh -oh. she was using her political power for some not as um wonderful things uh so she influenced Suleiman the sultan to murder his grand vizier oh. who had also been his childhood best friend oh, oh yeah Roxolana. Uh, you know um because the grand vizier supported Mustafa uh the original heir oh, to the throne the one who had been he, exiled been exiled Whoa. he supported his claim to the throne and i thought you know i mean you can't really blame the grand vizier necessarily because if there's this son in line and we don't know how long he was in line for mm -hmm. um you know you just sort of assume that he's going to be the ruler and then this new upstart comes in and kicks him out and so you can you can see both sides but the poor guy i mean whew, so murder is murder, never okay it's never the answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, yes and then she took it one step further and i assume um to cement her own son's claims on the throne uh influenced Suleiman to murder his eldest son Mustafa. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, too. So that was that's pretty cold. Great. That's pretty cold murdering your own son. Yeah. yeah. So 
Yikes. <laughs> Political power can be wielded for good or not for good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and I like some of the details. So besides those, um, I like some of the details about how women would operate because at this time, the, um, you know, uh, women in, in this, um, in this court and in many courts, uh, had to stay very private and had to stay very shielded from the mm-hmm. public eye, even though they did wield a lot of power. And, um, there were a few exceptions where women could go out. So if you proved to be an extremely pious woman, you could uh, basically be allowed to go out if you veiled mm-hmm. or if you went, um, with a large assembly. So you could go with <laughs> a big retinue. Yes. The retinue, right. Yeah. You go with like a hundred people and go out with your hundred serving girls. So you're basically one in this giant crowd. Uh, then you're allowed to go out. And that was seen as a big mark of respect that you had been pious and, uh, and sort of, um, obedient, I guess, enough mm-hmm. to deserve the privilege of going out as long as you were in these constraints. So these women had to constantly sort of um, deal with the tension of going back and forth between using their political power and, um, you know, doing what they wanted and running the show. Um, but they had to still sort of stay within the world of the harem. Um, so Roxolana would meet with officials behind a screen. <laughs> So that really reminded me of a, a priest in a confessional almost <laughs> like someone, someone yeah. talking behind a screen to another person about serious matters. Yeah. Um, or they would use a network of go-betweens. Uh, so these would be people who were looking to gain power um, in the, in the courts or in the harem. And uh, so these men, I assume would um, you know, sort of move between and, and like get messages from the harem and then go do the bidding of the women and, you know, maybe be the public face of these women. And mm. uh, you could actually gain quite a lot of power and, and prestige um, and influence by being one of these go-betweens. So it was kind of a, mm. another political position to, yeah. to be the public face of the. Well, one of the things that again stood out to me about the whole structure was how it was very complicated and very political. Yes. Um, and really, I mean, you think, I know the dynamics in any court, especially then, were like that. Very political. You had to be very savvy to kind of navigate. But it sounds like this was even more so. Like <laughs> yes. There was extra layers of intrigue and uh, and kind of political assignation and, and that kind of thing. I agree. When I was researching it, I thought like, God, this is so complex. <laughs> and uh, some of the women, although Roxolana wasn't recorded doing this, but some of the other... Um, uh, Valide or, or uh, some of the other powerful women would attend important political meetings behind a curtain, <laughs> this sort of thing. So they really had to kind of work around this um, need for invisibility. Yeah. But still, they were so important um, to the workings of the court that they had to be up on what was happening. So <laughs> it's it's really kind of this dance of like yeah. tensions between being there but not being there, know what's going on, but you can't be public and. Uh, it's really interesting and really so complex. complicated. Yeah, just yeah. so complicated. Exactly. <laughs> it seems unnecessarily complicated, yeah. but you know. <laughs> um, all right. So that was the life of Roxolana and some of her details. Um, so while she didn't achieve the position of Valide because she died before her son Salim II became the Sultan, um, she did leave a legacy, and her daughter uh, Mirahem. I'm pronouncing that right, um, acted as Valide both for her father and then her brother. So this is sort of two generations of women. She was uh, kind of a um, ruling by proxy situation. One yes. of these. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, so she obviously left a legacy and trained her daughter to kind of follow in her footsteps. And uh, these intelligent women um, 
aiding and influencing the men in their lives, the closest men in their lives. So, you know, they were an integral part of the family and the, and the rule mm-hmm. of their, of their country and their, their empire. So it's so interesting to see these, these individual women who kind of stood out, but they weren't the only ones. There were quite a few other, um, important women in the harem in this, as we said, kind of 130 year period. And as much as, um, you know, the structure of the harem continued both before and, and I think after in the Ottoman empire, um, you know, women, I think were in general, still important there was this this window of time where they really rose in prominence and as you mentioned they they did all sorts of things to improve uh the country and the infrastructure and uh, one of the the writers that we were looking at said basically that the ottoman harem women contributed to the upbuilding and modernization of turkey and also the world around Turkey. So kind of their influence extended beyond their own borders in terms of advances. And I'm sure people would come and visit Turkey and, and see what was going on and see the, uh, the infrastructure happening and carry that back to wherever they were from. Um, so it was this kind of fascinating period where women had a lot of influence. And I mean, it's, it's particularly impressive that they were able to achieve all of this during a time period um, all over the world where um they were they were having to work within the confines of gender discrimination and a male dominated society and one again one of the the authors that we read points out that this arguably made them more skillful than their male counterparts in terms of political savviness and wisdom and all of this because they have to negotiate a double layer of of um complexity i guess which is very interesting a very interesting point. Yeah. I like that quote too. When I read it, I had that one written down. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's a good way to, uh, to conclude this topic. Um, I don't have anything more. Do you have anything more? No, I'm good. All right. (laughs) Well, as usual, we will be posting the resources that we used for this episode along with the episode itself on our website, yesterladies.com. Um, don't forget to, if you listen to us through Uh, iTunes. We'd love it if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review and let us know how much you love the podcast. That would be really helpful. (laughs) Um, As I've mentioned many times before, you can find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So whether it's iTunes or any other podcast app you use, if you'd like to connect with us, that would be great. We would love that. We're on social media on Twitter. Our handle is yesterladies on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash yesterladies. And of course you can email us the old fashioned way by writing to us at yesterladies at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Sarah says goodbye as well. (laughs) Sarah, you've been so vocal. Yeah, there she is. There she is. (laughs) All right. Bye from Dana and Heather and Sarah. (laughs) 